0: the hour convening having arrived all members will please report to the floor of the house and take your seats all members will please report to your seats on the floor of the house mr. clerk would you ring the bell please
1: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host and joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going?
0: Well, it's um, always good to be with you, Kyle, but, uh, you know, uh, not looking forward to talking about some of the sad things we have to talk about, but at least we have some exciting things to balance out the sad things.
1: Yeah, really sad news. You heard uh, House Speaker David Ralston's voice in the intro there as he, uh, pulled the House together during one of the last uh, sessions. We uh, are recording on Wednesday evening, and Wednesday afternoon news came out that House Speaker David Ralston passed away at the age of 68 after an extended battle with illness. And so, you know, we're going to start by sharing some reflections on Speaker Ralston and on his leadership in the state, and then we'll get to uh, other politics news, including reacting to the election results that we saw last week in the the Senate election between Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker that's going to go into overtime. Also, the news that came out that a Fulton County judge overturned the state's six-week abortion ban, ruling it unconstitutional. We'll talk about what that ruling means and um, what it might mean for the future of abortion policy in Georgia. Uh, We had already had on our list to talk about uh, that Speaker Ralston had announced a couple weeks ago that he... Was not going to return as speaker in this session um, at the time. I don't think folks knew that how, at least publicly, knew how pressing his health challenges were. Um, but it does it does signal kind of a new era in the House that we'll talk about. And then we'll finish with uh, Senator Ossoff in Washington. He led an investigation into the medical mistreatment of people who were being detained in immigration detention in a facility in Southwest Georgia. So we'll. We'll talk about all those things today, but but yeah, Luke. To start with this very somber news on the on the speak on the passing of Speaker Ralston, who has been such a visible leader in our state for for so long. Um, I'll let you go first, just to share any uh, thoughts you have and reflections you have on uh, Speaker Ralston's life and in what he meant to our state.
0: Uh, to, to be honest, it's still all really sinking in because, as as you mentioned, it. Really, it was a surprise. Uh, you know, it, there had been reports that he had health issues and that he wasn't going to run for speaker again. But even a couple days ago, when the House leadership or the House uh, Republicans met to elect their leadership, I mean, that report very you know had the tone of like, oh, Rosten's gained some treatment, but he'll be here when session starts. And so, you know, to me, I was I was very surprised that he uh, he had passed away, and it's just. Uh, it's a loss for the state um because despite the fact that i have many 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 political disagreements and policy disagreements with uh speaker rosting he was by all you know reports every democrat that i knew in the house really respected him and liked him and considered him someone who was good to work with and uh For as many disagreements as I had with him on policy, there are some things I strongly agreed with him on. And you know, this this last session he had pushed uh, expansions to Georgia's mental health funding, uh, pretty significant expansions and reform in that. And there, you know, he was instrumental in raising the gas tax, which significantly helped. Uh, Georgia's infrastructure, you know, raising taxes, not something easy for a Republican to do. Um, And there, I mean, there's countless issues like that. And I think the, the bigger thing and the bigger loss that will be hard to replace, and, and hopefully the new leadership of the Republicans take, take Ralston's style to heart, is that Democrats were always in the minority and Republicans definitely would shove through some nasty pieces of legislation and stuff that we really, really did not like and were you know bad for the state. But most of the time, if we were doing something big that was not political, was not ideological, but was something super important to the state, Ralston found some Democrats to partner with, and he consistently treated Democrats as partners, and that on the big things that the state was doing he wanted Democrats to be included and he did that somewhat out of necessity because he needed votes sometimes, but also uh, I I felt like it was sincere that he wanted to get the best policy that they could and he made genuine efforts to include uh, members of both parties and also uh, something that will be sorely missed was just his uh, credibility and his ability to keep things civil and to not let the House become, you know, a uh, cluster and, a you know, a bunch of people fighting and bickering. He was very, uh, very dedicated to keeping things civil. And I think in the heated political environment we've had, that is actually a, a really, really valuable thing uh, that, you know, I hope I hope the new leadership to, tries to to follow his example in that. It's also just, you know, it's going to be weird going to the Capitol and and so much of my time at the state Capitol for the several sessions I've been down there is sitting in the chamber and listening to Roston talk because so much of uh, a house session is just the speaker talking. And so it's just going to be very strange to go there and and not see him or hear him. Uh, So, yeah, it's 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 a it's a sad, sad day for sure.
1: Yeah, really sad day, really sad news. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you talk about the the effort to increase the gas tax, you know, that was something that he got bipartisan support for, but that some Republicans who later ran for office called it the uh, largest tax increase in state history. Um, one of the values, I think, that was exemplified by that effort and by so many of his other efforts was his willingness to Get deep into the weeds of policy and take on some of the state's toughest challenges and be willing to make decisions, build a coalition to support changes that the state needed. Um, he also, you know, he tackled some of the the state's toughest problems, including our persistent problems with development in rural Georgia. He created that rural house Development Council of members that, You know, initially, and and we've talked about this so much on PeachPod, but, uh, you know, initially there was basically like no idea that was too crazy to be included in the, for consideration and discussion to the point that they were going to pay people large sums of money to move to rural Georgia. And that was something that, you know, didn't turn out to be practical, but it was clear that he had, you know, empowered a group of people who cared deeply about trying to make the lives of rural Georgians better and revitalize those communities. He empowered them to be creative and to try to try new things, do big things, you know, taking on the issues with the state's behavioral health system and the mental health package that they passed this year is another example of that. And so I had a a tremendous amount of respect for his willingness to do the hard work of governing and the hard work of building a coalition and when you look across our politics today, both among Republicans and Democrats, there's much less willingness to do that kind of work. And Speaker Ralston's tenure as Speaker was really defined by doing that kind of work. And so that is something that I'm going to miss tremendously uh, without his leadership in the Capitol. So Speaker Ralston, you will be missed Uh, prayers and a lot of love to his family, to his friends, to his staff down at the Capitol, to everyone who loved him um, sad to say goodbye to, to someone who's truly a giant in Georgia politics. And we've had to do that a lot lately, Luke, with uh, his passing, with the passing of uh, Johnny Isaacson, uh, John Lewis, um, a lot of you know, larger than life figures, Governor Zell Miller, a lot of larger than life figures in Georgia politics that uh, we've lost in the last few years. We, this is the first time we're getting together after the results of the uh, midterm elections have, have started to come out. Um, Nationally, uh, actually, tonight as we're recording, it was confirmed. The news network started to project that the Republicans would take the U.S. House uh, by a very narrow majority. However, Democrats are going to retain control of the U.S. Senate. They did that uh, by winning, flipping uh, Pennsylvania and winning Senate races in Arizona and Nevada to hold on to control of the chamber. And as you all probably know by now, Georgia's Senate race between Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker is going to go into overtime. It's going to have an early December runoff. For once, though, Luke, we are not going to be the center of the political universe, at least in terms of the highest stakes, uh, because Senate control will have already been decided and and Democrats are going to hold on to the Senate. Um, Here in Georgia, Democrats did not fare quite as well as uh, Democrats did nationally, Democrats lost all of the statewide state races, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general. Uh, all of those races were won by Republicans. Um, the only uh, Democrat that was able to, to move on and have a pretty good night on election night was uh, Senator Warnock getting into that runoff. Um, Luke, let's start with the Senate race that is headed for a runoff. And there were a lot of people, I think, who were just Downright shocked that Herschel Walker was able to force a runoff in this race, a lot of people who I think rightfully don't have a lot of respect for Herschel Walker um are surprised that he was competitive in this race. Um, but the question that I saw, and I believe it was Greg Bluestein that raised this. the question that I saw that was most interesting was, is Senator Warnock actually lucky to have not outright lost on election day? Is he lucky to have gotten into this runoff? He did get more votes between uh, him and Herschel Walker on Election Day, but he very easily could have lost in the same way that every other statewide Democrat lost. Um, What do you think about that question about whether or not Senator Warnock is actually pretty lucky to still be in this thing?
0: I think it depends on your frame, because really, I'm more in the camp that I think Herschel is lucky to still be in this race. Uh, and that he did not lose outright on Tuesday. And I don't say that just because I'm a partisan Democrat and I love you know Raphael Warnock and blah blah blah. Like the reason I say that is, around the country, candidates like Herschel, who were very closely linked to Trump and Trumpism, and you know seeing as more radical did really poorly. So Doug Mastriano, the you know Republican candidate for governor, I mean he he. That was one of the earliest races that got called. Uh, and, you know, the, similarly, Kerry Lake in Arizona and Blake Masters in Arizona. And I, I just uh, all around the country, the more Trumpy Republicans did not do very well. Most of them lost. So the fact that Herschel was able to hold on and take this thing to a runoff is is surprising in that context to me. It's not surprising in Georgia because, I mean, Joe Biden's wing in Georgia was one of the you know closest in the country in that race. You know, the margin was very, very close. So it's it's it would have been more surprising if there wasn't a runoff, in my opinion, um, because just how how close things are. And while Walker is very very troubled. Uh, with scandals and with not being very literate on the policy issues. I think there are just many voters in Georgia that all they really cared about was getting a check on Biden and a Republican Senate was the way that they thought they were going to be able to get it. And, you know, fortunately, I think for uh, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, that's, that's off the table now. This is about who the senator from Georgia is going to be. The control of the Senate question is, very abstract now and you have to start getting to some weird scenarios of you know people being appointed or someone party switching for this race to switch the Senate control. So I think in that sense, the thing I find more interesting, you know the kind of the, the counter to the is Raphael Warnock lucky it, it's more of what did everyone else on the ticket do wrong? that they were not able to make these races closer. Um, and I, I think, you know, part of it is not their fault, which is nobody else had the benefit of facing a candidate that was as flogged and troubled as Herschel Walker. That's definitely true. Um, but looking nationwide, many Democrats and many close states were able to win. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer made... Michigan looked like a blue state and not a swing state, uh, you know. While the Democratic candidate for Senate in Wisconsin lost, the governor candidate won. So there were plenty of instances that show candidate Democratic candidates were able to win in this political environment. So I think there's something that the Georgia Republicans are doing right, which you know, actually kind of leaning back on our conversation on um, Speaker Ralston, is I think they have a- been able to associate themselves with moderate-ish or at least singer-right singer leadership and pragmatic conservatism. You know, you definitely wouldn't call Kemp and the other statewides moderates, but they are pragmatists and they're not going to do anything crazy. You know, they're going to be very, very conservative, but they're going to do it in a way that's responsible. And I think that brand is really hard to beat in an electorate that is as inelastic as Georgians. I mean, it's it's a pure turnout game um, most of the time. And I think the reason why Walker didn't do as well as everyone else on the Republican ticket is that he's not associated with that conservative pragmatism. He's associated with Trump.
1: There's actually data that supports that. So Tim Bonnier, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. He uh, works for a political data firm called Target Smart, he runs that firm. And and one of the insights that he had from the data that he's looked at that I thought was pretty compelling was that the Dobbs decision actually brought up and crystallized a coalition that was opposed to Republican extremism. And so in some counts, that Republican extremism was extreme views on abortion policy. In others, that was extreme views on democracy and the willingness to overturn election results. Um... And the the notable exception to a lot of these candidates that you talked about on the Republican side is that Governor Kemp, other statewide Republicans, I think Burt Jones may be the one exception, but other statewide Republicans had, and Brad Raffensperger in particular too, had pushed back on Trump's extremism and had done a very good job of not being tagged with that same type of approach to politics. And so the one that, like you said, was most identifiable with Trump was Herschel and he's the one who did the worst among Republicans statewide. And so it was It was interesting. His insight was interesting not only for explaining what happened in Georgia and why Georgia seems like an outlier compared to the rest of the country, but why Democrats were able to beat historical precedent and win really competitive races across the country when it was the first midterm of a Democratic president who had full control. His party had full control of Washington, And so many times we've seen, especially in the most recent midterm elections, that the party in power gets shellacked on on midterm day. What do you think is next for Democrats in the state? Like, what lessons can they draw from, what lessons can state Democrats draw from their inability to make these races more competitive? I mean, you know, yes, Joe Biden, John Ossoff, Reverend Warnock, they all won very narrow victories in 2020. So it, you know, that was definitely an indication that at best, Georgia is a purple state, um, but it is still one that leans pretty conservative. But Democrats across the statewide ticket, with the exception of Senator Warnock, got totally blown out in these races. They, these races really were not close, and maybe they were never close. Um, with that in mind, what lessons can Democrats learn about how to, to move on and build from this?
0: I think the lesson is that you have to develop... A very clear, consistent, easy to digest message because I think all the Democrats that were successful nationwide did that. And I do not think that the Democrats, with the exception of Warnock, had a clear message because Warnock's message was super clear. It was, I really deeply care about Georgians and I understand there's deep economic pain, and here are the things I'm doing to fix it. And my opponent is not prepared for this job and there's too many bad there's too much rough stuff going on. You trusted me with this job. You know, hire me again, let me get back up there, and I'll keep fighting for the things that I've already been working on and look at the progress I've already made. You know, like that that those two kind of ideas and them working in concert. Very clear, easy to understand message. I know what Raphael Warnock wants to do. He wants to You know, uh, suspend the gas tax. He wants to build some interstates, Ted Cruz, and he wants to um, fight prescription drug prices. Like, those are, like, the three big things that he talked about. And he's, you know, I I think that's super clear. People get what he cares about based off that. Whereas, I feel like Abrams and B. Wing and even Jen Jergen and Charlie Bailey, I mean, they are talking about everything. They want to fix every single problem under the sun, And while that is important, and all those problems need to be addressed, as far as a campaign goes, it's super hard to keep anyone's attention these days. As much as I love talking to you, Kyle, if my phone buzzes, I'm probably going to look at it. And so in in this type of environment, I think the main lesson is Democrats need to find a message that is simple and short, and they need to hammer it. And it's boring to do that as a candidate, but that is the only way a message can get through uh now and I feel like the Republicans in Georgia are particularly good at that. The the message discipline showed by Kemp, especially this cycle of, you know, Democrats wanted to shut the country down. I kept us open and I put, you know, uh you know, prosperity first, like that that message he's that was the answer to every question that he possibly could make it a legitimate answer to.
1: And protecting lives and livelihoods and fighting 40 year high inflation thank you
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i yeah yeah, you know the the the, this is the cost of recording late at night as i I forget those things but yes lives and livelihood that's what i was trying to remember um yeah i mean he He was so
1: consistent in it that it is totally ingrained in me at this point
0: (laughs) right and like that is that is what you need to do because like one georgia what what does that mean i don't know what that means i have no idea what that means Yes, we're all together. Okay, great. What are we doing? Are we suffering together are we getting better together? What are we doing? Um, whereas like li- uh, lives and livelihoods kind of abstract too, but it, you know, it, it it is a little bit more economically focused, which in this time of economic concern, that's that's probably going to do better cuz the 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 biggest takeaway for me in comparing what other States successful candidates did that georgia candidates did not is they had a very clear economic message and that was message number one and two and three and then if they got asked about it they would still mention the economy but you know mention the other issues too you know they always found a way for the economy to come in there and warnock did that very effectively i think and i think warnock used uh the economy to be a lens to talk about his values, you know, of, you know, going after pharmaceutical companies that are making record profits by lowering prescription drug drug prices, you know, shows that he cares about common, you know, everyday Georgians, not, you know, pharmaceutical companies. Whereas just like Democrats, I, 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 I think a lot of the problem with Democratic campaigns is that they were always running in the primary. They were talking about things that, democratic voters like you and me care about and things that would make us feel good and happy on the inside but you know i I think there's a lot of voters in georgia who voted for kemp and warnock who just don't trust democrats to do any of the things we say we're going to do and they trust the republicans at least not to royally screw everything up You know, so it's just like they feel like we're going in a slow upward trajectory that's, you know, could be better, but it could be a lot worse. And I don't think Democrats have done enough to convince voters they're not going to do something that would make it really worse.
1: The other thing that seemed to be a problem that I didn't appreciate until reading some of the, you know, the post post mortem takes on what happened is that funding for... GOTV and organizing seem to really dry up in the final weeks of the election for Democratic groups. And Democratic, you know, not, not the Democratic Party, but progressive non-affiliated groups that got tons of money for GOTV in 2020 got significantly less money this time. Um, at the New Georgia Project, which is one of the groups that participated in a lot of this GOTV and organizing Um, they had a big leadership shakeup and their leader got fired uh, a few weeks before the election. And even Stacey Abrams' spending diminished significantly, although the number that I saw was on ad spending and not on sort of GOTV and, and organizing kind of stuff. But she had spent, I can't remember the number now, I think it was like about $2 million a week on advertising for months. And in the final couple of weeks, her spending dropped to like, 300,000 a week on, on TV and digital advertising. So it was somewhat surprising. And I bring this up because I think this is, you know, particularly relevant in the question of what Stacey Abrams does next. But these things that were sort of pitched as huge advantages that Stacey Abrams created for Democrats, by building all of this organizing infrastructure and empowering a bunch of these organizations to do voter registration, GOTV, organizing all this stuff, that that advantage seemed to disappear in the final weeks of this race. And Governor Kemp said that he he and Republicans learned tremendously from Democrats in 2018 and 2020 about how much investment, time and money that they put into organizing. And Republicans learned from that and built a lot of that stuff. You know, Kelly Leffler has an organization that she, you know wanted to build that would rival, Fairfied and New Georgia Project and all these progressive groups, um, that was organizing conservative voters. And that I think is particularly relevant in this question of what Stacey Abrams does next, because, you know, one of the criticisms of Stacey Abrams that I think was relevant was she got really focused on her celebrity and who she was as a politician nationally, maybe more so than, than her influence and impact in Georgia And I think there's a question of whether or not she continues to be involved in Georgia politics or whether or not she pursues a more national, uh, you know, a more national approach and more national vision for herself. Um, You know, she is so beloved in progressive circles that she may actually do better in, you know, even in a Democratic primary for president than she did here in Georgia. But the fact that 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 organizing and so much of the infrastructure that Stacey Abrams built up in Georgia seemed to come up short and contributed to how big a gap this was between Republicans and Democrats, um, I think is particularly useful in thinking about uh, what happens next for Georgia Democrats.
0: Yeah, well, one analogy I've always thought is really, really useful is a good field game, which is what Fair Fight and Abrams and all these different organizations build. It's a field goal like that. It is not going to win you a game that you're 20 points down on. And it is a, you know, it is a field goal and it is diminished significantly when your opponent has the same kind of organization. And, uh, you know, as you just said, the Kemp and the Republicans said they watched and learned a lot from what Abrams and verifying all these organizations did. And I think, unfortunately, there, there was some element of the Democratic Party that thought, oh, Abrams built this awesome turnout machine. Let's just put some money in it and let, you know, press go. And that's all we got to do. And I just don't, you know, don't think that's, that's it because it, it, you know, it's funny. It's like, you can never be pleased. It's always the, you finding the wrong war. Cause I feel like in 2014 had this podcast existed, you and I would be just talking about man, Jason Carter and feeling They're really trying to convince these Republicans to vote for him. And they're not doing enough to get the Democratic base out, and that's what we've been talked talked about, you know, during this period in 2014, all the failures to convince re- some Republicans to vote for them. Uh, and I think we overlearned that lesson. Uh, I-, I think we kind of gave up talking to people who didn't already agree with us uh, this cycle. I feel like pretty much all of the Democratic candidates were begging on enough Democrats to show up. And I mean, to be fair, that is where the vast majority of Democrats' ability to win Georgia is going to come from, which is turning out every single possible Democrat you can. But I think you can't just completely cede the field to Republicans, to all the independent voters. I feel like there is a lot of Romney, <clears throat> Clinton, Trump, or Romney, you know, Trump, uh, Biden voters that we left on the table uh, by not having a message that had anything that could really appeal to more conservative, more moderate voters. Warnock has focused pretty aggressively on having aspects of his message that will appeal to moderate, independent, center-right voters, etc. Uh, And I think that that ability to get some crossover votes, to get some people who don't always vote for Democrats on your side is really, really important. And I just don't think Any of the other statewides made an aggressive effort to do that. And I I think that cost us uh, severely. And I don't know what it's going to take to fix that issue. But um, I know know, uh, we want to talk about what Senator Ossoff has been up to a little later. And that might that might be a good, (laughs) good, good example of uh, some some lessons to learn.
1: It was somewhat notable too. B. Win got asked kind of what went wrong in this cycle. And one of the things she said was that there needed to be more access to funding for down-ballot candidates and that too much of the funding got caught up at the top of the ticket. <clears throat> and I think maybe that contributes to, you know, one of the things that Senator Warnock did well was he ran his own race. Um, and he, you know, he he put his his values and his personality out there sort of independently of other Democrats. And I don't know, you know, it's tougher when you get down to the t- down further on the ticket and people know less and less about who your secretary of state candidate is, your lieutenant governor candidate, your attorney general candidate. Um, but I did sort of sense in, in b answer to that, that with more resources and more focus on the down ballot, that they might have been able to run more individualized races. And, uh, you know, maybe for, for some of them, the outcome could have been different let's move on here and generally and talk kind of about what's next for governor Kemp. I mean, you know, governor Kemp, this guy, this (laughs) guy's Yeah. He almost did not become Georgia's governor in 2018. He almost, you know, uh, he narrowly won that race. He nearly lost it. Um, and then to come back after Democrats won statewide races in 2020 and to turn around and win this race by what? Seven or eight points. Um, it's a pretty tremendous political accomplishment for him. And a lot of the general, you know, Republican focus in terms of the presidential race in, in 2024 has been, will Donald Trump run again? And he announced on Tuesday night that he was going to run again. And is uh, Governor DeSantis down in Florida the, the best person to, for Republicans to put their hopes in um, if they want to move on from Trump? Uh, not a lot of national conversation about governor Kemp, although I think some things have started to pop up, but, uh, governor Kemp definitely is attached to sort of an alternative model that downplays Trump and moves on from him and talks about conservative accomplishments. Um, what do you think about when I, and I should say too, you know, governor Kemp, I don't think has nodded at all to the possibility that he could have national ambitions, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of Republicans that start looking to him and looking to the model that he created for moving on from Donald Trump as an antidote to some of their losses that they've had in the last couple cycles. Um, what do you think about prospects for Governor Kemp in a, in a national campaign, a, You know, maybe an opportunity to run for president?
0: Well, I, I heard James Carville last week say that Governor Kemp was the person that he heard the most about from some of his conservative friends. Uh so for whatever that is worth, whatever Republicans James Carville is talking to, uh, they really like Kemp. And I I think if Kemp wanted to run, I think he has a very, very compelling thing to run. And that now this is the portion of the show where everyone's gonna be convinced I'm a lackey for Kemp because I'm about to give like the, the pitch for like how he could become president, which is he I think is a very unique politician in the Republican Party right now because his natural home base of where I think he feels the most comfortable is the more MAGA-y, conservative, grassroots Tea Party element. But he has a lot of allies in the more country club, social elite Republican. uh, And, and I feel like that Chamber of Commerce element trusts Kemp to not do anything too crazy. And so he's a, he's a pretty good cocktail. The base likes him a lot and the base trusts him. And then the more, you know, uh country club chamber of commerce guys also trust him and like him. And there's not very many people that have that. He's far more personable than somebody like Ron DeSantis. He is not an Ivy Leaguer, so he's like pretty relatable. Like I don't think anyone would argue that Kemp comes off like a normal person. Like he 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 very much seems like a regular country guy. And I think that, you know, traditional have a beer with test, he beats a lot of people. Uh, and, and so if you're looking for someone to be able to beat Trump, he has a lot of the elements that I think would be really important, which is, you know, cross coalition appeal. Uh, he has credibility uh, uh, to, to both of those groups. And he just walloped Stacey Abrams, who, you know, is a Democratic icon, whereas ron DeSantis, oh he beat charlie christ you mean the guy that's lost like three other races that he ran for and was a former democratic or a former republican like nobody's gonna be all hyped up about that but i mean kemp beat Stacey abrams and that's gonna be worth something to a lot of republicans because a lot of republicans really do not like her and so um i think really the bigger question is does kemp even want to do it (laughs) because i don't know if he would to be honest
1: yeah, I mean the other thing in, in Governor Kemp's favor is he he made promises he can keep. And he has this very clean message on the campaign trail that he said, I campaigned telling you exactly what I was gonna do. I went to Atlanta and I did what I said I was gonna do. Um uh, you may not love all of it. And I you know, that to me is some somewhat of a nod to the abortion ban that he passed. But he said, I you know, I've always been straight with you about what I was gonna do, and I did what I was gonna do. And that sort of, like, very normal kind of folksy, like, I'm not like other politicians. I, you know, am honest about what I'm going to do, whether you like it or not, I think plays really well.
0: I agree. And then there's um, there's one other element I forgot to mention that I think makes Kemp a really strong contender. The fact that he's done some pragmatic things, uh, raising yeah. teacher wages, you know, sup- you know, supporting the... Uh, more, I guess, moderate initiatives from Speaker Ralston, like the mental health thing, like the Rural Development Committee. You know, he did, uh, you know, tax rebates. So, I mean, like, he has some interesting policy ideas to run on. I mean, maybe it's just because I really don't like Ron DeSantis and I would much prefer anyone else. I just think Governor Kemp has a lot of legitimate, old-fashioned campaign and things to campaign on in both the like he's good with people he uh it has as you point out has a you know I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do I'll play it to you straight and you might not like all of it but you can trust me like that's that's good but he also you know just like he he knows how to keep the base happy and keep the the middle line people happy and he actually like has policy he has stuff he wants to do and he does it or he tries to, whereas, you know, we're de- dealing with um, DeSantis and them. They're all just like trolling people all the time. And I, I would much rather Kemp or someone in Kemp's mold run than, and win than uh, DeSantis or Trump or any of those other people who just seem like the only thing they want to do is gig attention and hurt other people. Uh, I-, I would much rather someone like Kemp run, but... Again, I I really, I think the biggest question of this is, does he even want to? Because as you mentioned, Kyle, he has not even vaguely hinted at any interest in this. But I also have never seen anyone ask him. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how he answers the question.
1: Yeah, I don't think he was ever really conceived in this way up until winning this second, winning his reelection. You know, and, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if during most of his first term he, you know, Sat there and was like, I like some of this. Some of this I don't really like, uh, when I'm done being governor, I want to go back to Athens. I want to go watch the dogs play every weekend, enjoy my time with my family. Like that seems to be more of the vibe I would have gotten from him. But you know, the interesting thing is once you do become compelling, and if you are a compelling and popular alternative to a lot more polarizing people like DeSantis or Trump, uh, you're going to get invited to do something like this. Um, and so it's a question of whether or not once you've been invited and once you've been lifted up and talked about, uh, are you going to turn it down in that instance? Let's move on and talk about another hornet's nest for for Governor Kemp that might be waiting. Uh, yesterday, a, a Fulton County judge overturned the state's six-week abortion ban that was passed in 2019. Um, the, the The outcome at this point is basically that. The raw the the law has been enjoined by a uh, Fulton County judge, and it will move on to the state Supreme Court for review on appeal. That the Attorney General and and the Kemp administration already said they're going to appeal this ruling. Um, but Luke, can you walk through for our listeners exactly what this ruling was um, and what it means for the future of the state's abortion ban?
0: So what this ruling does is, it, as you said, it enjoins the enforcement of some provisions of Georgia's heartbeat bill, which you know prohibits abortion after uh, a fetal heartbeat could be detected. And the reason that it does is based off of, and I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, but it's the ab Initio, initio Doctrine, which is based on uh, Geor- the Georgia Constitution, Article 1, uh, Section 2, Paragraph 5, which says... Quote, legislative acts in violation of this constitution or the constitution of the United States are void and the judiciary shall declare them so. This isn't, and that's the end of it. And I mean, that is incredibly clear language uh, from our constitution. And we are facing a factual circumstance where it's undeniably true that Roe versus Wade had not been overturned at the time that they passed this bill. And so because of that, um, this law is, uh, as, as this constitutional provision says is, is, is void and the judiciary shall, which means they have an obligation, uh, declare them. So, you know, so declare them. So, uh, unless there is something that they're, the, you know, the, in, in this case is going to go straight to the Georgia Supreme Court cause it's, 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 uh, interpreting the Constitution. Um, unless there's just something they pull out of their hat, (laughs) I I think the effect of this is that the legislature is going to have to come back and they are going to have to pass this bill again because at the time that they passed it, it was unconstitutional under the U S constitution. There's absolutely no question that that is true. Uh, that at that time that was the case and they passed this thing anyway. And so this constitutional provision says that bills on, you know, bills, They're they're void. They just never were in effect. And uh, our Supreme Court is very textualist. They they follow the letter of the law. And I I would be surprised unless there's just something that this order doesn't cover that I'm missing because I have not read beyond this order. I would be very surprised if the Georgia Supreme Court does not uphold this decision.
1: Yeah. and, And so what that means practically politically is that if this ruling is upheld in the state Supreme Court, then the legislature would be required to pass an abortion ban again, if it wanted one to be in effect. And that is notable politically, given that one of the things that Republicans did in redistricting this last cycle was they willingly gave up a few seats in the state house to solidify their majority. And when this abortion ban passed in 2019, it only passed by a single vote in the House. So there was a significant number of Republicans who had reservations and did not want to support a six-week abortion ban. And even more complicated now than it was then was I believe some Republicans were sort of under the impression that the Supreme Court actually overturning Roe and allowing their abortion ban to go into effect was something that was very unlikely to happen. Um, And so to them, passing that law was theoretical. Now, if uh, Republicans in the legislature pass another ban and Governor Kemp signs it, it's going to go into effect immediately upon whenever the law says it'll be in effect, like July 1st of the same year uh, that it's passed. And so that, to me, is going to ratchet up the pressure on Governor Kemp and on Republicans in the State House and State Senate, although particularly in the State House, uh, it's going to really ratchet up pressure on them to, to sort of feel the full political blowback to passing such an unpopular initiative. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, Georgia Republicans were somewhat insulated against people's views of them being extremists, even though they did back this abortion ban, and even though during the election an abortion ban was in effect in Georgia, they were somewhat insulated against people viewing them as extremists because they pushed back against Donald Trump. And that is going to be gone. And so the blowback that you saw in other states, particularly in states where abortion was on the ballot, like in Kansas when that uh, constitutional amendment, uh, they rejected an abortion ban and a constitutional amendment by a pretty large margin in a pretty conservative state. And in Michigan, where I believe it was a constitutional amendment to enshrine a right to abortion in the Michigan Constitution, won by a large margin because... A lot, of voc- a lot of voters' attention and focus was put squarely on the abortion issue, and Republicans are, are on the very wrong side of public opinion when they back extreme abortion bans. Um, so that, to me, creates a really interesting political dynamic if this court ruling is ultimately upheld, where do we really think Republicans can pass this ban again? Um, and what is it going to mean for our politics and for their positioning in two and four years uh, if they decide to do this again and, and face this blowback again?
0: Yeah, because we've we've hit it, but I just want to you know make it super clear: this case is about if this law is unconstitutional solely because at the time it was passed, it was known to be unconstitutional, and so the. Georgia Supreme Court, I doubt, will reach the question of if there is something else in the Georgia Constitution that either prohibits or allows abortion. They will probably just address this question. And at least from reading this order, I have not read anything else other uh, than this order on this doctrine. I mean, it sounds to me like this is a pretty good argument that uh, the the law should be found to be unconstitutional, and I, I will say the Georgia Supreme Court, at least in my experience, uh, does not mind making the legislature's life hard if there is some constitutional doctrine that they think is not being respected. Uh, and so I, I I would not be shocked if they said that this is right, assuming there isn't some case you know that's like lingering out there that's very obviously. Again, against against this thing, I I don't think there is just because at least how this order portrayed it, the uh, state's argument was really the fact that, well, you know, that Roe versus Wade basically never existed because the, you know, Dobbs decision got rid of that protection and, you know, constitutional rights either exist or they don't. And because that one doesn't exist, then it's never existed. Is 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 sort of the, the gist of their argument. Where, um, you know, I I think that's a really dangerous doctrine. If I was a judge, even a conservative judge, I would I would not like to play with that. And I think the approach of the superior court judge in this case uh, makes a lot more sense. Which is like you look at when this decision was made, which is what the doctrine you know says you're supposed to do. And if something was unconstitutional at that time, then. It, it, it's it's void and has no effect and basically never was a law uh and you know if that changes later then the legislature can come back and so you know as you're saying this does not prohibit the legislature from just literally going to the floor dropping the parts of this bill cuz it's actually it is just actually parts of the bill not the entire bill um because it's severable so the the heart you know the 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 heartbeat ban part of it uh You know, they can just drop that on the floor the first day of session. And if they had the votes, they could pass it and the ban could go back into effect immediately. It's just, as you pointed out, Kyle, I don't think they have the political positioning to do that. And I don't know, based off of what has happened nationwide since Dobbs was uh, put into effect, if they think that's a good idea anymore. Because at the time it seemed like a great idea, but now that it would actually be a real thing, I don't know if uh, how how willing the legislature is to do that. Which I think this is going to be a huge test of the new House leadership because there will be Republicans in the House who desperately want to do this; that this is their first priority, and how the new House leadership after the passing of Leader Austin or, or Speaker Raulston, uh deals with that, I think, will be a the uh, you know unfortunately for them the first difficult test they have to, to face uh, because there will be a lot of pressure for them to just go ahead and repass this thing
1: yeah well actually let's talk about the new house leadership because the interesting thing about the new house leadership that was voted on before speaker ralston's passing earlier this week uh was that john burns was uh nominated as the republicans nominee for speaker and he's very likely to become the next speaker they have to formalize that with a full vote of the house on the first day of session. But, um, you know, it seems very likely that that he will win that vote. And then the other sort of notable person that was elevated to leadership was uh, state representative Chuck F. Stration. He's going to become the new majority leader in the house. And both of these, uh, folks are sort of considered to be in line with Speaker Ralston's view of being kind of a more moderating consensus building, kind of approach. Uh, House Republicans didn't put in Speaker Alston's place a sort of a firebrand or somebody who uh, is polarizing and divisive and, and wants to basically stir up a bunch of shit in the House. And so that is you know particularly relevant as this abortion question is going to likely get dumped back onto the legislature. What did you think of Republicans uh, choosing to basically pick new leadership that at least on on their face now appears to be a continuation of, of Speaker Ralston's approach to managing the House.
0: I, I think it reflects the fact that Leaguer Ralston's time as Speaker was really, really successful for Georgia and frankly, Georgia Republicans. And he came into the Speakership after a more conservative, more brash, more, you know, it was it was before Trump, but a more Trump-like guy was speaker. And I think everyone remembers that uh, or at least a lot of a lot of Republicans remember that and they really didn't like it. And there has consistently been a small minority of the Republican caucus that has not liked Rosting or his leadership and wanted to take it in a more conservative direction. We don't know how close these races were because the Republicans voted on a secret ballot. And there were more conservative people like Barry Fleming, uh, running to be speaker. But I mean, you know, I, I, I think, I think Republicans realized that they are in a competitive state. They had a leadership style that worked really well. They still got many of the super conservative stuff done that they wanted done. Uh, they just, they just said no to some of the, the wackiest stuff that, you know, frankly, has has been disasters for the parties that have successfully passed it. Uh, so I, I I think it's it's just a testament to Ralston's way of running things being successful, and the Republicans wanting to build on that success. And I mean, I mean, they have no reason to change course. You know, this election in the House went exactly as they planned it to. They lost some seats, but that was literally the plan uh, to solidify the other the other seats. They have passed most of their um priorities and so I, I mean I, I I would see no reason to change course if I was a Republican and I I, I think uh, as terrible and rancorous as American politics is Georgia has kept it a lot cooler and I I, I think people probably uh, appreciate that and want to to keep going in that direction rather than risking, uh, a more confrontational approach for, I mean, really no reason, in my opinion, because they're getting what they want most of the time.
1: Let's close by looking at Washington and, and something else that happened this week. Um, Senator Ossoff, you know, he's been kind of quietly plugging away at a lot of at a lot of work in Washington. And one of the things that, uh, you know, is is becoming increasingly important, although, you know, might have been underrated at the time, is that uh, Senator Ossoff was named as the chairman of a Senate Committee on Investigations. And this week, he led hearings for his committee of an 18 month bipartisan investigation into medical abuse of people who were detained in immigration detention at a facility in South Georgia. Um, they uh, heard testimony and, and filed a hundred something page report on a doctor who was found to have performed aggressive and unnecessary procedures and performed procedures on patients without getting their consent. In particular, these are uh, gynecological procedures on on women who were detained in immigration detention. Um, ones that were really alarming um, for a you know a basically a federal agency, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to have allowed to happen to people who were detained in their custody in federal custody. Um, you know, Luke, this builds on. Senator Ossoff's experience that he did have coming into the Senate, you know, he's, a, he's a pretty young guy and he was, uh, ridiculed by some Republicans for his lack of sort of real world experience. But one of the things that he did before he went to the Senate was he was the, uh, CEO of an investigative film company that had done some pretty, uh, you know, expansive investigations in, into corruption issues, uh, abroad, um, and he's definitely bringing that kind of experience uh, to his role as the chairman of this committee in the Senate. And, uh, you know, kind of the first time in a while, you know, the first time, you know, particularly relative to the David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler eras that we've had a Senator in Washington doing kind of good substantive work um, through the power that they have on a committee. Um, You know, what do you, what do you think about, about all that?
0: I I think it's good. It's Ossoff is trying to do real substantive work, it's what he campaigned on, it's what he uh you know believes in and I think it's it's that brand building that Democrats need to do and to 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 work on because when you have a six-year term, it's a lot easier than when you're in a campaign and I think Ossoff is is smart to really dive into things like this that can be really time-consuming and really difficult for you to do when you are in your fifth or sixth year as a senator and having to run for re-election, this kind of substantive work that can really build your reputation and, you know, earn, you know, just help voters see what you care about and what your values are. I think that is really an important task to do because... Every everyone treats political offices differently. Uh, that was, you know, what I hit on comparing Kemp and DeSantis. And I think Ossoff, from the beginning, has been, you know, I'm a nerd. I I, I do investigations. I I dive deep into policy. Uh, you know, I, I I care about this substantive stuff. And um, am I the most charismatic guy? No, but I I will dive into this stuff and 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 really dig into the details and figure out what's going on, and I will fight corruption. And that was a huge part of his message. And I always liked that. And I I think it's an underutilized function of the Senate and House, frankly, is its ability to investigate corrupt things that are happening. I wish the State House and State Senate would do more of that as well. And you know, on a just interesting historical note, uh, it's a great way to set your up yourself up to be picked as vice president because (laughs) Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman both, uh, did a lot of investigations and got a lot of, uh, popularity, uh, among the public for, uh, investigating corrupt interest in the government and in the private sector. So there, there, there is history of it being a, uh, a success, a successful way to, uh, be the number two. So (laughs) we'll see if that
1: happens. It would be, uh, An interest, another interesting chapter and quite a meteoric rise for, for Senator Ossoff. All right. Well, that is all for today. Um, another big news week in, in Georgia politics. Um, again, just want to share our condolences and prayers and thoughts with, uh, Speaker Ralston and his family and everybody who loved him. Uh, his loss um, gonna, you know, leave a big hole in, in Georgia politics and in the legislature for quite a long time. Um, but we will leave it there. Uh, Luke, Thank you, as always, for joining the podcast.
0: Happy to be here. You know, it's... Um, the state definitely suffered a real loss with uh, Speaker Austin. I will miss him. I, uh, you know, I'm praying for his family and hope that they are all doing well this this hard time. And I hope Georgia learns from his example and tries to, you know, keep keep its civil nature together. Because I, I, I've really appreciate that uh in georgia politics that it hasn't been the dumpster fire that federal politics has been so i hope we don't lose that um and it's a team effort and it's not just one person but he definitely set a good example uh for that and so i hope that uh that the rest of the republican leadership takes that to heart and and follows
1: that example yeah agreed all righty y'all we'll we'll be, we'll be back again soon y'all take care and we'll talk to you later bye Thanks for tuning into PeachPod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to PeachPod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.